Amen. What a beautiful, beautiful hymn. Um, if, if you have your Bible, I guess we can turn to Luke chapter 15. But before we get there, I want to look at, um, read a few definitions and kind of talk to you this morning about the concept of, of sonship and, and discipleship, two distinct things taught in Scripture. Um, and I wrote down these definitions to start with. Of, so first of all, sonship, S-O-N-S-H-I-P, sonship. The state of being a son or of having the relationship of a son or a daughter. Um, we, we all know what this is. You have parents. You, you have sonship with your parents. And your sonship is, is dependent on someone else, right? So if I'm a son of Ken Coker, it was dependent on somebody else that I'm a son. Even if you're adopted, it was dependent on someone else to adopt you. I don't know if y'all remember several years ago, um, Brother Sam and I went to uh, the radio station for WDJC and they, we talked about, uh, or really, I mean, well, Brother Sam was the one that they, they interviewed, but what happens to those that never hear the gospel? And he asked the DJ, he said, how much did you have to do with being your parent's son? And um, you can go back and listen to this. The DJ says something he, that I've always wondered about. He said, very little. <laughs> Well, the truth is you have nothing to do with being the son or daughter of your parents. Uh, if you have very little to know, I'd like to know what that very little was that you have to do with. Um, now, discipleship, on the other hand, this is the definition of discipleship, the state of a disciple or follower, the state of being a disciple or follower in doctrines and precepts or commands. So, so discipleship is is following someone's teaching, following someone's commands, following the way of life that someone teaches you to follow. And to a large degree, uh, your discipleship is dependent on your actions. You have a lot to do with your discipleship. You see, sonship throughout the Bible, being a son, always precedes or goes before discipleship. Before you can be a disciple, you must first be a son of God. Um, we could say it like this. You must first have a relationship before you can serve, right? Um, you, you must first have salvation before you can actually worship. Today we're worshiping God. We're worshiping him because we have salvation, right? He is the one who has saved us. Um, you, you would have union and then fellowship. So you're united with God and then you can have fellowship with God. Um, many, many people would teach it this way. You serve God to be related to God. If you'll serve Him, then you'll have a relationship with Him. If you'll worship Him, then you can have salvation. Um, if you'll follow Him, you'll be united to Him. That's backwards from what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you're saved, so now you should worship Him. The Bible teaches you're united to Him, now you can have fellowship with Him. Um, and, and in my opinion, this distinction between sonship and discipleship is, is an integral key in understanding the Bible. Um, it's a great cause of, of confusion in Christianity when you, you really get the cart before the horse. Um, this is Elder E.D. McCutcheon was a minister in uh, Mississippi, and he wrote a book called From Sonship to Discipleship. And in the preface to that book, he talks about the reformers um, who tried to return to primitive Christianity. He talks about... Um, the job they did there. And he's speaking of Martin Luther, one of the key reformers. He says, Martin Luther was not able to make the distinction between becoming a son 
and becoming a disciple. You see, many people link those two together, that only the disciples are the true sons or the true daughters of the king. He says he was unable to make that distinction. When he arrived at the conclusion that it was by faith only, he was following the pattern of medieval religious thinking that a man has to that a man had to respond in some way in order to be a son of God. Uh, this theory entered into the Christian church during the early years of its existence and has been a confusing system to those who try to understand the Bible from that standpoint. And that is so true because you'll read the Bible over and over and there'll be passages of Scripture that clearly teach that to become a son of God is a sovereign act of God. God that chose you or God that regenerated you or God that died from you. You had nothing to do with that. But then you'll see verses of Scripture that seem to indicate that you have something to do with your salvation. You have something to do with uh, following God. And the, the key is that you have to separate those two clear, distinct things in Scripture. One talks about your relationship to God as far as sonship, and one talks about your relationship to God um, as far as discipleship goes. And, you know, many would say that we're all children of God, and that's simply not true. Um, Jesus, I believe it's in John chapter 8, verse 44, he would start that verse by saying, Ye are of your father, the devil. Y'all remember that? Um, listen to, to Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works, and the children, so we're talking about sonship here, the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So we see that there are children of disobedience and children of wrath. You see, God's love, this is a hard thing, thing for some to comprehend but it is true without scripture that God loves with a discriminating love he 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 doesn't love everyone you know in um in Exodus chapter 11 I'm going to read this starting in verse 4 it says and Moses said this is this is when the the firstborn is going to be slain in in Egypt and it says and Moses said thus saith the Lord about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon the throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the meal, and all the firstborn of the beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there was not like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that you may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel." See, there is a difference between the Egyptians, which is typical, it, it's a type of the world, and Israel, which is a type of God. And notice who put the difference there. It says, the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and the Israels, or the Israelites. It wasn't that the Israelites decided they were going to be different than the Egyptians. And it's not that you and I today, if we're trying to follow God and we believe we've been saved by His grace, it's not that you and I did something to put a difference between us and the others who are not trying to follow God today, it's the fact that the Lord, God Almighty, put a difference between us and the rest of the world. Now that should humble us, not make us high-minded, not make us proud, but it really should drive us to our knees to say, God, why me? That's the, that's, that's the, that's the posture of a true disciple. You remember when Jesus uh, was telling his, his 12 disciples that one of them uh, was going to betray him? They had that 
attitude, is it me, Lord? <laughs> we need to understand that we are capable of, of very wicked things in this life. And it's only by the sovereign grace of God that any of us will be different than the ones who will perish in a lake of fire. It's because God himself chose us before the foundation of the world. He put a difference between us and between others. So as we look at sonship today, uh, there is a, a legal aspect of, of sonship, and that's really adoption. Kind of touched on this, but God chose or adopted a people before the world ever began. That's what we believe as primitive Baptists. And let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 to, to kind of get a, a scripture reference for that. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he, God, hath chosen us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. There's your sonship. He, had, he, he predetermined your destiny that you would be adopted as children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So there's a legal aspect in which uh, God adopts you into his family. You've been adopted into the family of God. You were chosen by God before the world began to be adopted into his family. There's also a vital aspect to being a son. And you know, the word vital is vitality. It means life. So whereas the adoption process might take place in a courtroom, uh, there is a process that you, you might could say takes place in a in the birthing suite, right, or in the hospital, in the delivery room, where you're given life. You remember when, when Nicodemus came to Jesus? And what was it that Jesus said to Nicodemus? Before he could see the kingdom of God, he had to be what? Born again. Life had to be given to him. Not a, not a physical life, which obviously Nicodemus had when he walked to Jesus and talked with Jesus, but there was something um, that that, that men have to have before they can see the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ himself said you must be born again. There had to be vitality given to you. And, and notice it's not, he doesn't say you must get born again. He says you must be born again. And there's a big difference between be born again and get born again. To, to get born again would mean that you have to do something, which would be impossible. But to be born again means a power greater than you has to act upon you to bring about a change inside of you. Do you see that today? And so that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus is you must be born again. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. So at some point these Ephesians, just like me and you, were dead in our trespasses and sins. And what that means is we were in such a state of trespasses and sins that the the Bible gives that picture word that we were dead. And dead people, that's just a simple thing. Dead people can't do anything, right? We could go to the cemetery this week and, and, and you could preach to the headstones from this afternoon till next Sunday and not one of them is going to hear a word you say. Not one of them is going to respond to your calls to discipleship because they're dead. And it's the same way with us. At some point in our life, maybe we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and the gospel was foolishness unto us. But when that power that is larger than us, the Holy Spirit of God, God the Father, God, uh, God the Holy Ghost, the Son of God, when they speak into our lives and turn that stony heart into a heart of flesh and understanding, then we can hear the gospel. 
then we can understand the gospel. Then we want to follow God. Listen to this. This is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. Speaking of sonship and becoming a son, a vital son of God. It says this, and because ye are sons. Y'all see that? Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Now notice it doesn't say because you want to become a son or you have a desire to become a son, but the, 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 the message of this, this verse and the message of Scripture is because ye are sons. You see that? Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart crying, Abba, Father. And if there came a point in your life when you didn't care about God, but then at some point you thought, I am a sinner, <laughs> I need a Savior, and you felt something inside of you reaching out. You know, that's what the Spirit of God does. It connects us with another world. It connects us with another dimension that we can't see with our natural eyes, that we can't understand with our natural ears. Jesus would say over and over and over, those who have ears to hear, let them hear, right? So when the Spirit of God comes into our lives, there's something in us that cries out, Abba, Father, that we have a Father in heaven. And you may not have had a good father on, on earth, but I'm telling you, if you've been touched by the Spirit of God, you have a good father in heaven. He's a good father, right? He, we can all testify that he's been good to us. But then there's this, what I'm going to call a, a, a manifest aspect of sonship, and that's what we would call discipleship. To, to manifest something is to make it clearly visible in the eye or obvious to understanding and so what discipleship is, is when we manifest that we are the children of God. Um, it's, it's where we declare by our actions and by our obedience that we are the children of God. And so that should be the goal of all children of God, right? Is to manifest in their lives that they are the children of God. It should be the goal of those who... Because they are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into their hearts. The goal of those people should be to manifest from that point on throughout the, the entirety of their life that they are children of God. To follow God, to learn about God, to talk about God, to walk with God. That is the goal of the child of God or the disciple of Christ is to become more like God. So as we talk about sonship and discipleship, I hope the point is clear that in Scripture, Sonship always precedes discipleship, always goes before. But the goal of the son is to become a disciple. Think about Noah. And Noah, uh, let's see, I think it's Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. It says, it says, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What, what, what was the difference between Noah and, and many other people at that time? It's that Noah found grace, unmerited favor in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and you know what's interesting about Noah is after Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, he's been brought into this relationship with God, God gives him a blueprint of how he can save himself and how he can save his family from this untoward generation. Remember when Peter said that, save yourselves from this crooked generation? We talk about that a lot here. Well, it's interesting to me that Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and then God gives him a blueprint. He says, if you will build this ark, you can enter into this ark, and you will save yourself, and you will save your family from this crooked generation. So he, he calls him through grace. That could be typical of our sonship. But then he gives him the blueprint for life. 
and says, if you'll follow this, you'll save yourself, you'll save your family. That's discipleship. And it was up to Noah. Noah found grace. He couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't earn the favor of God. He found grace. And by grace, God gives him a blueprint of how he can save his family. But make no mistake about it, it was up to Noah if he was going to build that ark. And he did it, and what happened? He saved himself, and he saved his family. That's just like me and you. When we've been called by God's grace, God's given us a blueprint on how we can save ourselves, how we can save our family. But it's up to us to do it, right? And we're not robots. He doesn't make us do it. He wants us to do it. He helps us to do it. He gives us the grace to do it. And when we fail, how many of y'all try to do it and you fail to do it? <laughs> I know I do. He gives us grace to get back up and start doing it again. <laughs> but first, Noah found grace in his eyes. Think about God. He brings Abraham into a relationship with him in Genesis chapter 12. And it's not until Genesis chapter 17 that he gives him the ordinance, if you will, of circumcision. God didn't say in Genesis chapter 12, if you'll... If you'll follow this ordinance of circumcision, then, then in Genesis chapter 17, maybe I'll call you to go out of this country and, and build a great nation out of you. No, he calls him first, and then he gives him the ordinance on how to live. Y'all see that? In Exodus, think about the book of Exodus. We quoted from Exodus earlier uh, from, from where the blood of the lamb uh, had the, 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 the Passover blood of the lamb made the, the angel of death pass over the children of Israel and they were covered by that blood. But for like the first 15 chapters, it's recounting how God comes to the children of Israel and delivers them out uh, as it would be on eagle's wings, the Bible says. By the sovereign grace of God, really, they're delivered out of Egypt. And then the last half, you might say, of Exodus teaches them how they're going to live as God's free people. It's, a, it's typical throughout the Bible. In the book of Romans, the first, what, 11 chapters are basically spent in great doctrinal lessons on how we are saved, how we are justified, uh, what God did for us. And then in verse uh, chapter 12, and I believe it's verse 2, he says, Now be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he starts with, here's how you became a son. Here's how you were saved. And it transitions into now that you are a son, now that you know how you were saved, now that you know what God has done for you, here's how you should live. You go to Ephesians. That's one you could read tonight. It's six chapters. First three chapters deal heavily with how God, what God has done for us, how he chose us, how he redeemed us, how he predestinated us, how he sovereignly calls us by his spirit, how he's broken down the middle wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles to make uh, peace between those two that were in enmity. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he says, this is how you're supposed to live. You have your sonship, then you have your discipleship. Now I want to look at a story um, and, and ask you some questions uh, at the end. But let's look at a, a great example of this in the Bible, and that's where we find it in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is teaching in a parable, and he says, uh, and he said, verse 11, a certain man had two sons. Now in this parable, there are, uh, there are two sons, and I don't want you to get the, 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 the idea that one of them's good and one of them's bad. They both had their issues, which, by the way, we all have our issues, right? <laughs> How many of y'all made New Year's resolutions? Thank you. My wife won't even talk about it. I'm like, Carrie, let's make some resolutions. But I guess when you're perfect, baby, you don't have to make them. But she's like, she's like and I've got a lot to work on. <laughs> um, but she was number two. In the, and remember, I came in number three in the race. So if y'all remember that from a few weeks ago, I guess I still have some things to work on. But, you know, I make a, I've said this before. I make a lot of New Year's resolutions because I want one or two of them to stick. <laughs> um, but we've all got problems. 
So many times we focus on the one that we call the prodigal son, but there was also a prideful son at home who had his own problems. In verse 12, it says, um, And the younger of them said to his father, so of these two sons, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And basically what he's saying to his father here is, is, is you would be better off dead to me than to be alive to me. I want what's coming to me. I want my inheritance now. And the father, it says, he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. So he took all his inheritance, everything he has, everything he's accumulated in life. He gathers it all together and he took his journey. And so he's taking a journey away from the father's house. I'm going to tell you today, I believe today that we are in the Father's house as the church of God. What about y'all? I believe we are in the Father's house. And that's a good place to be, isn't it? It's a good place to be. There's no, <laughs> as Brother Hugh said, there's 52 Sundays and there's no better place to be on Sunday than gathered with the Father's people in the Father's house worshiping the Father. But here he gathers all his stuff and he takes a journey away from the Father's house into a far country, it says. You know, I've heard Brother Sam say this many times, and it's so true, that sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, and it'll cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Y'all have heard him say that, and that is so true. Sin may look good, and it may have a pleasure for just a little while, but I can tell you that the end of that is death. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is what? The ways of death, destruction, separation. How many men have been tricked into the, to the thought that, oh, this looks good. The end of it is the destruction of their family. Or maybe it's the destruction of their, their job. Or maybe they lose themselves. I'm going to tell you, when, when, when we leave the father's house to go into a far country, you better watch out because you're getting in trouble real quick. Do you remember in, um, in, in Genesis where there, Abraham and, and Lot come together and, and Lot and, and Abraham basically says to Lot we've got uh, you know our we've become too big and so you need to choose where you want to go and then I'll I'll take whatever you, you don't choose that's basically what Abraham says and Lot sees the well-watered plains of Sodom and he chooses to go into Sodom and and I was reading through that recently uh, that account and Boy, Lot messed up his life. But you know, there's these two angels that come into Sodom, and apparently Lot has gained a lot of influence in Sodom. He's at the gate of Sodom. And, and he begins to talk the people of Sodom out of what they're wanting to do to these angels that have come. And just like that, the people of Sodom turn on Lot. Isn't that amazing? You can make friends with the world, but the world will turn on you in just a second if you even decide to partially stand up for what God would say is right. It's better just to be in the Father's house. Do you all agree? So he's gone on a far journey away from the Father's house, and it says when he got into this far country, he was there. He wasted his substance on riotous living, luxurious living, sinful living. He just wasted everything he had on that. It says in verse 14, and when he had spent all, now he's broke. And I think you'll notice something here about the world turning on you. There arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. 
Now I'm sure in verse 13, when he gathered all he had and the father's inheritance went into a far country and was wasting his substance on riotous living, I doubt this brother had, he probably had something to do every night. What do y'all think? You come to my house. I want to hang out with you. But he runs out of money and he runs out of friends. I'm going to tell you, that's another good thing about the Father's house. People will stick to you, stick with you through thick and thin. But in the world, they will, they will drop you like it's nothing when something better comes along. There arose a mighty famine in the land. He began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. So that means that he... This, this man who, in, who, had, who had gathered this inheritance and wasted on righteous living is now with the pigs and he's desiring that he could just fill his belly. He's, he's left empty, do you see? And he wants to fill his belly with the husks that the swine are leaving behind. Uh, not a, a nutritious meal whatsoever, but he's so empty he just wants something to fill his belly. He was desiring that his belly would be full with the husks. He's empty. And that's, that's a great lesson to us, that when we leave the Father's house, it will leave us empty. It may be fun for a little while, but the end thereof is an empty life. It says in verse 17, and when he came to himself, I like that. That's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the best verses in all of Scripture to me. It says, and when he came to himself, when he came back to his right mind. That's basically what that means. What the Bible's saying here is that this man was insane to leave the father's house. And, and I, I was reading Brother Harold Hunt recently, um, a, a minister from, from East Tennessee, and he made a great point. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, we're all dealing with some mental illness. That's just true. Every one of us. And he says, he, 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 he came to himself, so he comes back to his right mind. And you know, it might be hard, but sometimes the greatest thing you can do for your friends or for your family or for your children or even for church members is let them get a taste of what they want. Just pray to God that they'll come back to themselves. You know, we can't change people. Sometimes we can enable people. That's not a good thing. But God can change people. Sometimes we just got to let them go and hope God will change them. Do you all agree with that? That's a hard thing to do. I pray I never have to face it. Uh, but the Father, I believe, did the right thing in this, uh, in this parable. He says, this is verse 17, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? He's like, back in my father's house, I was getting fed. Back in my father's house, I had clothes. Back in my father's house, I was warm. Back in my father's house, I had something to drink. When I was in my father's house, I wasn't left empty. In verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father. Now, that's, that's, that's something we all need to know. Uh, maybe if you take that far journey into a, into a strange country and you're left empty, the good news is you can always come back to the father's house. Don't y'all like that? You can always come back to the Father. I told somebody the other day, I said, we are not a cult. If you leave, you can come back. <laughs> we'll let you leave. We'll let you come back. My prayer is you don't leave. <laughs> but you can always come back to the Father's house. And he says to himself, I will arise and go to my Father. And I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I think something's changed in this brother because he doesn't even see 
I mean, he sees that he has sinned to his father, but now he says, I've sinned against heaven. I've violated the law of God. I've sinned against heaven and I've, I've sinned against before thee. And I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And for the first time in this parable, he's showing humility. The mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is, is humility. He says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And I'm going to tell you in this whole parable, that's the best idea that this boy has had. He says to himself, I'm going to arise and I'm going to go back to my father's house. And I'm going to repent and I'm going to try to make amends with my father. And, and in humility, he says, I don't, I, don't, I don't want anything but just to be like one of your hired servants. I don't even want to be your son anymore. I just want to be one of your servants. And this is the second best decision he made. It says, and he arose and came to his father. Now I'm going to tell you, how many of y'all make really good decisions? A lot of times I make them late at night. Tomorrow, I'm going to do this. Tomorrow, I'm going to do that. Really good decisions. And tomorrow, I don't get up and do it. <laughs> Any of y'all guilty of that? Well, here, he says, tomorrow I'm going to rise and I'm going to go. And in verse 20, it says, and he arose. The best time to start a good habit, the best time to arise and go back to your father, the best time, to, you know, the best time to start a Bible reading plan today. <laughs> the best time to try to become a better disciple is today. Best time to join the church. When is it? Next Sunday? No, today. That's that's um, that's the best time to make good decisions is today. He says he arose and came to his father. Listen to this now. But when but when he was a great way off, his father saw him. I love that because you know what that means. That means that father never stopped looking for his son. I love that. When he saw him a great way off. And I'm going to tell you, that's, that, that's, that's indicative of our God. He never stops looking for you. Before this, before this parable, you can go back and look, and it says there is, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. And he says, but when he was a great way off, his father saw him. And he had compassion. He didn't have justice on him. He didn't say, oh, I finally found him. I'm going to tell him what a terrible person he was. I'm going to tell him how he ruined his life, how he ruined my life, how he, he brought me and his mama such great uh, heartache and such great shame. He didn't. He says he had compassion on him. He had pity on him. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Now here's the, you know what he's supposed to say? I just want to be your servant. <laughs> but the father cuts him off. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put on a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I believe it's eight times the word son is used in this parable. He says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. 
Now I'm going to tell you, that son never did die a physical death, but there was a separation that took place between his father and his son. There was a death to fellowship that took place. He said at one time he was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost. He is found. And what's it say? And they began to recount all the bad stuff he had done. <laughs> is that what it said? It says, and they began to be merry. A celebration was taking place. And you may think that's, that's not a parable for me. If you think that's not a parable for you, you better check yourself. Because <laughs> you might be the one that's wandered into a far country. <laughs> There's a celebration that takes place. I'm going to tell you, I, I like celebrations, don't y'all? I, I like to, to rejoice. And when we see people who return home to the church, we see people who return home to their God, we shouldn't just have rejoicing in heaven. It's there. We should have rejoicing on earth. We should have rejoicing in the church. We should kill the fatted calf and get out the robe and the rings and make merry and have a good time. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now I want to ask you, Four questions, and I want y'all to answer me now. I give you permission. When the son was in his father's house, at the beginning of this parable, when the son was in his father's house, was he his father's son? Now, when the son was in a far country, away from his father's house, was he his father's son? Now, when the son was in the pig pen, empty, Desiring to be fed with the husks. Was he his father's son? And when the celebration was underway back at the father's house, was he a servant or was he his father's son? You see, the son never lost his sonship. He lost his fellowship by forsaking his discipleship. And that is the biggest danger to the child of God in this life. You see, there's no man that's going to pluck you out of the Father's hand. That includes you, and that includes anyone else. You can't pluck yourself out, and nobody's going to pluck you out of the Father's hand. But when we deny our discipleship, we break our fellowship. But the good news is we never lose our sonship. Does that bring you a lot of comfort in this life? But the goal is that we would manifest our sonship to the world around us. Let's close by looking at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 10, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it says Jesus Christ came into the world. He was born of the virgin. He came into the world, and the world was made by him. 
Oh, the humility of Jesus Christ. He came into the world, the world that was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. He wasn't embraced by His own. He wasn't believed on by His own. He wasn't accepted by His own. But I want to look at two points, and I really want to start with verse 13. Let's go to verse 13 come back to verse 12, because it says that there were some in verse 12 that received him. There were some that did embrace him. There were some that did believe in him. There were some that did accept him for who he was. And I want to show the discriminating love of God. What made the difference? It says in verse 13, which were born. There's that vital sonship. Do you see that? There's that vitality, that life. These people who believed in the name of Christ, they were born not of blood. It wasn't, it wasn't of their bloodline because they were of the children of Abraham or anyone else. It says, nor of the will of the flesh. It wasn't their own free will. They didn't decide that I'm going to do this. It wasn't of the will of man. It wasn't that, that some great person uh, had decided that they were going to be uh, children of God. It wasn't that their mom decided, their dad decided, the preacher decided. Uh, of, of, on this verse, John Gill talked about being born again. I quote him a lot, but he said, all effort is ineffectual without a divine energy. You know, we should bring our children to church. We should teach our children the Word of God. We should, we should love our neighbors, and we should talk about the gospel. But without divine energy, none of it's going to make a difference. Do you agree with that? They weren't born of blood. They weren't born of the will of the flesh. They weren't born of the will of man. But he says, but of God. How did these people become alive in Christ? It was of, it was of God. Two words that mean a lot, don't they? Of God. God. Paul would talk, he would write to Titus and say, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. You remember that? Not of works by righteousness, but we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. It was by, it was by the, it was by the loving kindness, the mercy and grace of God that you were born again. So let's go back to the, to the point that I want to look at here. Starting in verse 11, it says, he came to his own, his own received him not, they didn't embrace him, but as many as received him. So we see that there were people that did receive him. There were people that did believe in him. There were people that wanted to follow him. To them, to those that received him, gave he, gave he power. That means privilege, authority, the right, the ability. He gave them power to do what? To become the sons of God. Now, now many will teach on this verse and they will say, see there? to close out this verse says even to them that believe on his name and they'll say see you have to believe on his name to become a son but we've already seen in verse 13 I believe the Holy Spirit put that in there for a reason <laughs> that these people weren't born of God because they believed they weren't born of God because they accepted him or, or embraced him or received him or believed in him but he says to these people he gave them the power listen to what you've been given today if you believe on the name of Jesus Christ you've been given the power You've been given the privilege to become, that is to manifest yourself to this world, a son of God. Listen to this, 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 the definition of become. It says to arise, to appear in history, to come upon the stage. I like that last part, to come upon the stage. Like an actor where the curtains open up and there's an actor standing there. To come upon the stage. And you know what this world needs? Not more politicians. <laughs> Not more media personalities. <laughs> they need more Christians who take the privilege that God has given them to step onto the stage of human history 
and be the manifest children of God. That's what we need, isn't it? And think about the privilege. You say, you say, what privilege do I have in this life? God's given you the privilege to step onto the stage of this world, to a world that is watching, and manifest yourself as His Son. By the way we walk, by the way we talk, by the things we do, by the way we attend church, <laughs> by the way we read our Bibles, by the way we treat our family, by the way we pray for others, we can manifest ourselves. We've been born of the Spirit of God. God's given you the privilege when you believe in His name to step out on the stage of human history and show the world what it is to be one of His sons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the many blessings of this life. Thank you for everyone who's gathered here at Vestavia Primitive Baptist Church. And we pray, God, that you would bless us in this year to come. You'd be with our, our country and our division and the virus and, and, and protect us all from that. But uh, even so, Lord, in a spiritual nature, that this would be the, uh, a year of revival. Lord, that you would revive us. As the hymn says, all our help must come from thee. We need you, God. We need you to open up doors of opportunity. We need you to open up doors that we could speak the truth of your word to our friends and our neighbors. We need you, God, to bless the efforts that we, we put into raising our children, into, into uh, discipling our grandchildren, or, or into, into helping people at work. We need your help. We need that, that divine uh, influence in our lives if we're ever going to be effective disciples. So we, we humbly ask, Lord, that you would, you would enable us to fulfill this privilege that you have given us that we could step out on the stage and be your children to a world that's watching. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.